what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Now, as I am sure you are well aware by now, One Minute Remaining has a Patreon subscription service, a place where, if you would like to support the show, you can now do so. And as part of that support, we of course offer you bonus extras as a thank you. Extras, including access to One Minute Remaining episodes early and ad-free, invites to our online wine and crime evenings called One Sit Remaining, where we get together and discuss the cases within the show over a cheeky drink, Uh, and also you get access to bonus monthly episodes. With these bonus episodes, I branch out a little past the normal show of interviewing men and women incarcerated within the US and sit down to chat with other people from this world former corrections officers, detectives, judges, and many more people. So today I wanted to bring you an example of one of these episodes, part of my chat with former Sergeant-at-Arms for the Banditos, Johnny Two Guns Walker. One of the biggest requests that I get from doing this show from our Australian audience is, will you talk to Australian inmates? Now, for those of you who are unaware, unfortunately, the laws in this country are extremely strict when it comes to current inmates talking to the media. I would need pre-approval from the very top for these conversations. Not only that, but any interview conducted would be strongly scrutinised, and should it paint the system in a bad light, it would immediately be shut down. So unfortunately, I am unable to do so. However, what I can do, and what I will be doing, is speaking with former inmates. People who have served time behind bars in some of the most notorious prisons in this country. And today, I speak with one of those men. Bikies. It's a term that conjures up a lot of images. And in the media, we've all seen the stories 
and watch the news bulletins. Seven News has obtained security video showing a brawl between rival bikie gangs inside a Sydney bar. South Australian bikies have been arrested over a wild brawl interstate. Police have stormed a southwest Sydney warehouse dragging out suspects at gunpoint over the kidnapping of a former bikie. For most people in the general public, we've always known they exist. I mean, growing up in Queensland, I would often see a bikey or two ride past on their bikes, and apart from a quick glance over to check out the bike and the patch that they're wearing, you generally just go about your day. However, in 2009 in Australia, things took a pretty serious turn when in broad daylight, a bikey was killed in front of hundreds of members of the public at a Sydney airport. Shocked passengers fled in fear when violence erupted at Sydney airport in March 2009. By chance, five common cheros were on the same flight as senior Hells Angel Derek Wainahu. The court heard both sides called in reinforcements and seven men from each side stepped up. The jury was told bollards became weapons and there's evidence of kicking, punching and stomping on Anthony Zervas as he lay on the ground. He died of head injuries and stab wounds. This incident alone would soon lead to a national crackdown on these clubs, including some of the harshest laws placed on their members. In Australia, it has become increasingly difficult to be a member of a bikey club especially in the state of Queensland, which is the only state still to have these strict laws in place. But what are these so-called outlaws really like? What happens in these clubs behind closed doors? Is it all drugs, alcohol and violence? Johnny Two Guns Walker is a former sergeant at arms of one of the most infamous motorcycle clubs, not just in Australia, but globally, the Bandidos. Known for their distinctive red and yellow colours, the Bandidos originally formed a charter in Australia in 1983, making headlines not long after in 1984 when seven people were sadly left dead after a fight broke out between the Bandidos and Comancheros. In recent months, yet again, the media has been peppered with news of shootings, failed assassination attempts and what would appear to be brewing violence amongst the many rival clubs. Johnny Two Guns Walker grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne. He was no stranger to causing a bit of mischief and get himself into a scrape here or there. What was that like growing up in Melbourne around that time? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I believe it was a it was a better time. It was a, it was a good era. Uh, you know, it was a working class area. You had your mates. You had, we didn't have much as kids, but we made do with what we had, and uh, and we had fun doing it. I, I think uh, times back then were a lot easier, a lot easier for kids back then than it, than it is now. I think even just uh, with drug issues and things like that, it was a little bit harsher times, uh, mm. the way you were raised yeah. and brought up with the way it is today. But um, I think we, we learned the right way with our parents being hardness or whatever it was. You know what I mean? We, we grew up with morals and respect. Speaking of parents being, you know, hard on you and stuff like that, you're, it sounds like your old man was a bit of a tough guy, you know. he Am I right in saying he used to work uh, as a bouncer? Yeah, he was, he, was an, he was a bit of a knock-around bloke and, uh, yeah, worked as a bouncer his whole life and worked on the railways as a blue-collar worker. He, you know, he was hard on us kids, but he taught us, like I said before, he taught us the right way with morals and respect. And, you know, if you're wrong, you're wrong. That's, uh, you know, it was straight in the line. There was no uh, crossing that line with the old man. When you say you used to get in trouble doing stuff down the train station or the rest of it, did you were you getting in trouble with the law back then when you were that, that age or just, you know, just no, doing I, stupid kid I, stuff? I just stupid kid stuff, really. Like, we weren't, we weren't bad kids, but mm. um, probably looked at it as, by adults as little assholes. You know? <laughs> but um, back then too, like, Obviously, my time I spent in jail, you'd see people coming in for a punch on in a pub or they've had a fight. I mean, back then, 
the jacks were more likely to give you a slap and put you in the divvy van and drive you home. It was different times, you know what I mean? Now you see these young kids that are coming in the system now, their records are that massive time, they're 21-19 because the jacks are just present charges for any little thing, you know? His father, a blue-collar worker who worked the doors as a bouncer, decided it was time to take a young, slightly cocky Johnny into the local boxing gym to get him focused and off the streets. I obviously started uh, kickboxing when I was young, then sort of broke away from it at 13 when I started going to high school, hanging out with the sort of wrong blokes and uh, knocking around the streets and train stations. And, um, yeah, so he got me down the boxing gym and thought, um, you know, if you think you're a bit of a tough guy, we'll take you down where these tough blokes are and teach you a lesson. But uh, (laughs) it sort of backfired and I enjoyed it, you know. So So Johnny found his place in the boxing gym where he learnt the art of discipline. And I was never one of them kids that went looking for trouble, but obviously – just growing up in the western suburbs, there was always if if you wanted to have a fight, the you know it wasn't hard to find one. And um, but yeah, yeah. Com- coming from the boxing gyms, you, I mean, I say to people now, you know, if any any sort of troubled kids, the boxing's the best thing for them. Boxing, kickboxing, mixed martial arts now is big. I mean, it just shows it gives you that discipline, and yeah, you 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 learn in the boxing gym. There's always someone bigger and better. So don't walk around with your chest. Oh, out. totally. You, it doesn't matter who you are. You'll get touched up some days and you'll touch someone up another day. I mean, a boxing gym, it's not all one-way traffic. So it definitely teaches you the right morals and respect and it grounds you a little bit, you know what I mean? It wasn't long before he was starting to take his boxing much more seriously, cracking through an impressive 80 amateur fights. Do you still remember your first amateur fight? Yeah, I do. I, I lost my first amateur fight. Uh, went, in the, went in there all guns blazing, yeah. I still remember that fight. Yeah. 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 Oh, look, I've had one amateur fight in my life and I quit afterwards. Because yeah. the, the lump in your throat and the stress and it's just like waiting. I think everyone should do at least one yeah. just to experience it. Yeah. You know, experience what it's like to be hit in the ring, experience that pressure, experience that, you know, feeling. Because yeah. it, it's in, it's an incredible feeling. Like it's, an, you know, it's it's something that I've never experienced before. It's incredible. It's 100%. It's an it's a adrenaline rush that you'll get from nothing else. Every fight I had, I had that feeling. You know what I mean? So it's every time yeah, you hop yeah. in that ring, you know, you have that feeling, the butterflies, the nervousness, letting people down. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like you, you, when people say, oh, I'm not scared, you, you – Every fight you go into, you're scared. And it's not that you're scared of uh, being hit or you're scared of a fight. You're scared of letting people down or not doing your best. Or it, it's a, So it all comes into one. And I, I think that that's what brings – if you don't have that feeling going into a boxing fight, I've always said to younger kids coming through my career, if you don't have that feeling of being scared and that nervous energy, I mean, you're probably in the wrong sport, you know what I mean? Because that's what brings you out the best. When you walk up in there firing with two guns, Johnny – John Walker, 20 fights, 20 professional fights, 15 wins, 13 inside the distance. Yeah, but a couple of clubbing body punches there from Johnny Walker. Troy, as you were mentioning those statistics. Stutt- oh, a big punch oh, there. Oh, lovely lift to the head of Stutt. Yeah, in fact, Stutt starting to fight. Oh, oh punch oh, left hand. Stutt's down the canvas. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Johnny would soon turn pro, racking up another impressive record, and he tells me he was laser-focused on his goals when it came to boxing. I mean, I, li- I lived it for a long time. That's I, I lived it. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't even be. I wouldn't even hop in a car with someone smoking a cigarette in case the smoke got in my lungs. And <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, for a, for, a, <laughs> for a little bit of time there, I was I was crazy boxing, boxing, boxing. You know what I mean? And it probably it probably pushed yeah. people away from me that were close to me at the time because I was that driven in the sport that you know what I mean? I just, yeah. That's all I wanted to do until it come to an end. But I achieved everything that I, I wanted to achieve. We won a world title. Uh, we were world rated, you know, in the WBO and IBFs. And um, for a kid from the West, that's that was all my dreams come true. But at, by the end of it, when I was 29, I had enough. Been doing it since a 14 year old yeah. kid. There was a breaking point there where I, I just had enough. There was splits coming in the armor, like like I said to you before, like through my amateur career and, and all my professional career, I wouldn't drink. I'd go out to nightclubs, like even in, yeah. even in off off times, I'd go into nightclubs, just drink water. Then obviously going into my last couple of fights, there was times before the fights where I'd been in the party scene and partying a little bit and had little, you know, breaks in that armour that I knew, I know anyone around me wouldn't have known the difference, but I knew in my head that I had uh, broke that armour that I had for so long, which I wouldn't, wouldn't go out, wouldn't touch drugs, mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't drink and I knew I'd done it before them last two fights and I always said to myself once I stopped taking the sport serious that's I'll walk away and my trainer always said you know when it was time to walk away he'd, time to get he'd tell me and I'd always respect what he says you know what I mean? that's a that's a huge part of your life for so many years um you know when it comes to boxing as we said there's so much structure involved you stayed off the drink you wouldn't get in a car with someone who smoked and you know you, you were training no doubt constantly yeah. there's regime so you leave that world and now do you kind of feel lost? Like what? what yeah. Do I do? So I would also, as an amateur, you get up in the morning, five o'clock, you go for a you ten know, k run every day, and then you train at four o'clock in the boxing gym at night. Mm-hmm. As a, as a professional, it's the same sort of thing. But you get up in the morning, go for a run, then midday you do like a strength session with weights, and then obviously at night, five six o'clock, you'd be in the gym. And we used to train a bit later at night, six o'clock, to try equal what the fight would be because all those the fight nights was like seven o'clock at night. So we train a bit later at night. So it'd be a full day schedule of training. Yeah. And obviously, when it, when that come to an end, you know, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be on me to walk away from boxing because obviously, like I said to you at that time, I'd had enough. And then you wake up days later after retiring from boxing, and you think, I don't have to go for a run anymore. No I don't have to train. What am I going to do? Yeah. And you sort of just, yeah. I, I was lost. You know, when I was lost, no schedule, no, uh, you know, regime to go off. You know, even after my boxing, I always had my close friends, always had family. But um, after being on such a high. As a professional athlete, you're always looking for that. Even today, like, I'll train at the gym. I'll go in there, do my burpees and do – people look at me in the gym like, who's this crazy bloke? But 
you're always striving for that little bit more because you've been at such a high level. People don't, around you don't realise that you're always looking for that, that next edge. That's probably how I found myself in the next bit of my life with the bikies and the brotherhood. And So Johnny's story after boxing was much like most professional athletes when they stop doing the one thing they've done for the majority of their lives, not knowing what to do next, missing that structure, that focus. It saw Johnny searching for something to fill the void and he would find that at the Bandidos Clubhouse. I'm assuming you already knew people who were part of that world before you sort of just ju- jumped into it. Yeah, I already, knew, I, knew, I already knew people down there and obviously not just the bike club I joined, I knew people at, all, at a lot of different biker clubs and people who had gone that way. Obviously before me, obviously I was busy with my boxing career Yeah, through my 20s and that's how I ended up getting invited down there and having drinks and yeah, one thing led to another. So as I've already said, you say the word bikey and most people instantly go to the image of the intimidating tattooed bloke ready to punch on at a moment's notice. Johnny, however, says not only is it not like that, but he still misses the life he had. Uh, everyone's got like their own persona on bikies. I mean, every day I miss, I miss that life. Every day I miss, I miss that life and it's probably some of the best times of my life I've had. Um, it's a brotherhood. Yeah. They're not just letting anyone come in there. They've they got morals. They won't let you touch drugs and these people smoking ice and all this sort of stuff. That doesn't happen. I mean, you, you'll be kicked out when you come in doing that sort of stuff. These blokes, are for the world I've come up through, they've they got the high standard of morals that I stick by. There's not like sleazing onto people's partners and misses. I come from a, a world of boxing and live that high standards. And I sort of, when I went there, you know I mean, I thought, you know, these blokes, these blokes think like me. This is, this is no different to what I've been thinking my whole life anyway, the way I've been raised and brought up. So if you make the decision to become a one percenter, a member of a so-called OMC or Outlaw Motorcycle Club, like with any club or organisation, you start at the bottom. These members are known as prospects. But as a word of warning, if you were thinking about joining a club as a prospect, don't expect to be smashing beers and partying at clubhouses on a Friday night. As a prospect, you are barred from all of that. You've got to be clean. You got to, I mean, you, you could have to go uh, drop someone off to an airport or pick someone up from a hotel or, you know what I mean, or, you know, like members there could be drunk, can't get home, you know, we're not going to let them drive home drunk. Mm. That's, what, that's what I mean. Like they, these mm. bikies, these one percenters that have such a bad name from our authorities and, and through the system and that, I mean, they've they're, they're got more morals than most, you know what I mean? Their morals are very high and, I mean, that just proves there. Some some prospects are 25, 26 years old. They're not drinking or taking drugs. They're sober. And, you know what I mean? And they're, they're on standby in case a member's drunk, an older member who's been there 20 years, can't get home. He's going to get a lift home. He's not going to let him drive home. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or his partner's not well. She needs to go to the hospital. He'll take him to the hospital. You know what I mean? Like, this is the stuff they stand by and that these are the things that happen. You know what I mean? And that... And the general public wouldn't see it like that. They look at bikies like they're all just scumbags and they're all druggies and it's complete opposite. If you're on a clubhouse and you're messy, you know what I mean, they're, they're the first people that will put you in a prospect's car and make sure you're home, not let you be there messy all over the floor. It doesn't happen very often, you know what I mean, because that's everyone's looking after each other. And their rules are more strict than most, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a young female goes to a nightclub dressed dressed up and, you know, good chance someone's going to grab her on the arse, someone's going to do something. In a boy club, that doesn't happen. If, if there's females there, if that's, not, if that's not your female, you don't look at her, you don't touch her, you don't go near her, and you show her the upright respect. These stories I hear that people try put a persona on bike clubs the way they are, it's, it's a complete opposite. They run on very high morals. 
With Johnny now looking to fill that void left by boxing, he threw himself into the bikey lifestyle. Most members have day-to-day jobs, but Johnny decided if he was going to join, he was going to go at it with the same laser focus he did with his boxing. I've, I, at, that, at that time, I was, I was coming off after winning the world title in boxing, and you know, I mean, I had, I had obviously a bit of money saved, and I sold a property that me and my ex-partner, me and my ex-partner broke up through, sold a property. I had money there, so I didn't have to rush back to work. Yeah, and um, just started this new lifestyle, and yeah, so I lived it every day. Um, and also, I did my bit of personal training on the side. So, I mean, yeah, ninety-nine percent of bikers they, they've all got, they've all got a day job. You know, I mean, it's no criminal enterprise where you join a club and it's you know, like the, you watch Sons of Anarchy. And, <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, not like that. You know what I mean? I mean, Sons of Anarchy. I think that's what the police watch and they think that's what's going on. Well, I think that's what most people watch. They think that's what goes on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's not. It's not I mean, we're not sitting at a table working out how to make money. You know what I mean, most people are going to work and going home to their wife and kids. And- Johnny joins the Bandidos like everyone else as a prospect and already having the ability to happily abstain from alcohol and other vices from his time focusing on his boxing, it wasn't long before Johnny rose up the ranks to become Sergeant-at-Arms. You're listening to part of my chat with Johnny Two Guns Walker, former Sergeant-at-Arms for the Banditos here in Australia, a bonus episode as part of our Patreon subscription service. Johnny goes on to talk me through the role of a sergeant-at-arms of an OMC, as well as his arrest for murder, his time behind bars, and one of the biggest prison riots Melbourne had seen. Uh, they saw the, the prison guards, obviously being outnumbered, left the prison. And so there was a there was a six-hour period in that prison, in that during that riot, that there was no officers on, on site at all. They were all outside arguing with Victorian police who was going to take control of the prison, them or the guards. I really hope you enjoyed today's little snippet of one of our bonus episodes. To hear the full one-hour interview, just head to the show notes below. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network.